come from first from uh, Romans 7, verses uh, 15 to 25. And for that one, I'll be reading from uh, the translation called The Message. And uh, that will be followed by 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, from the New International Version. First from Romans 7. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more, for if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have to have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I go and do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acts to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. And then going to 2 Corinthians uh, 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. This is the word of the Lord. So there I go again, making that same stupid mistake. What is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing the thing I don't want to do? I know what's good for me. I know what God says is sin and and what isn't. And even when I want to do good, I choose evil. Even when I've decided to not do that thing again that, that I've been doing over and over, I find myself doing it again. Why am I so stupid? I'm such an idiot. Do you ever look in the mirror and say, say this to yourself? I think Paul understood the inner struggle that all of us go through. We know and want to do good, and yet we don't. Even when we do good and are able to live as, as good people, pride is just lurking around the corner, saying things like, wow, look how much better I am than this other person. Headset backpack on your right side, please. Sorry. Is it better? Okay. My body seems to get in the way of this, this pack. <clears throat> or maybe you say to yourself, no, I'm not like that. I, I'm so humble and don't judge people like that. And then you catch yourself being proud of your humility. Like, what's wrong with that? What, 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 why do we do what we don't want to do? And what we do 
No, and why do we do the things that we say we weren't going to do and we do them anyways? We should have known better. For the last few weeks, we have been in a series called Cancelled, where we're to forgive as God forgives and not as we ourselves want to forgive. That means we're to receive his forgiveness and also forgive others by the same measure that we are forgiven by God. This week, I want us to look at how we are to forgive ourselves as God forgives us. Now, I googled to see if there's a Bible passage that says we should forgive ourselves, and I couldn't find any. I researched and looked online to see what other people had said about this, about forgiving ourselves, and and there are very many different opinions. True, the Bible doesn't actually say anything about forgiving ourselves, but what the Bible does say is that God forgives us and wants us to forgive others. If God wants to forgive us and does forgive us, who are we to say we can't forgive ourselves? What is it in us that thinks we don't deserve his forgiveness? And why do we go around punishing ourselves and are angry at ourselves when God is not? I think Paul also struggled with his past. Remember Paul, he was a murderer, someone who persecuted and killed Christians and is now a Christian himself and a leader in the church. And he would, in fact, bring up this part of his past in a few of his, his letters and would even address himself as the worst of sinners. I wondered if he struggled with his past and what he did. Maybe he himself should have known better. Someone who studied the Torah and knew so much about the Bible, yet he was persecuting Christians and Jesus, who was the expected Messiah. And so he brings it up in his letters, talking about how he persecuted Christians and how he was the worst of sinners. Yet, it didn't seem to control who he was. He wasn't defined by this one act in his life, but he was able to let go, maybe, and and embrace the forgiveness enough that he would bring it up over and over. One of the hardest things I find when trying to forgive ourselves is to even talk about it to voice what you have done in the past, what, what is haunting you. But Paul seems to be at a place where he could talk about it freely with his other Christians. And you could argue a little bit that, well, Paul didn't know better. He thought he was doing God's will, and he was, he was doing something that he felt like was what God wanted. And yeah, it's always easier to forgive yourself when you don't know better, But what if you do? What if, how do you forgive yourself when you know that something is wrong, yet you do it anyways, and in the back of your mind, yeah, I know God's going to forgive me, so I'm just going to do that thing that I shouldn't be doing. Kelly Connor was a 17-year-old who got into a car accident and killed a child named Margaret Healy. She was forgiven by the parents of Margaret Healy almost right away, But for 20 years, she couldn't forgive herself. She felt like she didn't deserve to be happy or to even have a life. It was a painful way for her to live in the world, feeling separate from everyone. She felt ashamed, unable to talk about it with anyone, as if something was wrong with her. She would ask herself, am I truly this horrible monster who had killed another person? Her entire life was defined by that one moment. 
And I came across this story in a book by Desmond Tutu called The Forgiving Book. I highly recommend this book. If you've never read it, it's, it's a great book. And in the book, he shares that every person is forgivable and that there is no sin or wrong on this earth that cannot be forgiven. He shares a story about a man who was called the Modemo Monster. Modemo was a, a town, and, and there was a man who committed such atrocious acts that he was called the Modemo Monster. Uh, he raped and, and killed his ex-wife, and, and the new newspapers labeled him as a monster because of the severity of his acts. And when Desmond Tutu heard about this and read about this event, he himself was appalled by what happened. It was so wrong. I can't believe this man did what he did. But at the same time, he felt that what people were labeling this man as a monster was wrong. And so he wrote a letter to the local newspaper saying to stop calling this man a monster. Let me read you a quote by him. He said, he may indeed be guilty of inhuman, inhumane, ghastly, and monstrous deeds, but he is not a monster. We are actually letting him off lightly by calling him a monster because monsters have no moral sense of right and wrong and therefore cannot be held morally culpable, cannot be guarded as morally blameworthy, Tutu wrote. He added that this man named John Coetzee remains a child of God with the capacity to become a saint. And this may shock some of us. We should condemn the ghastly acts of awful cruelty, but we must, as they say, hate the sin and love the sinner, or hope that he may change for the better. Yes, what this person did was evil and gruesome and so very wrong, but to call him a monster is to take away his humanity to say that he is beyond forgiving, that he is cursed or should be cursed. When we start to dehumanize people, when we start to reject the image of God that is in every single person, that means the person is so beyond redemption, so beyond who and what God has made them to be, that they are no longer worthy of being called human or, or being treated as a human being. This doesn't mean that this person should get away scot-free from their actions. True forgiveness requires more than just feeling bad. There is a difference between feeling bad about something versus receiving the forgiveness of God that leads to freedom of forgiving ourselves. This Johann Coetzee was eventually sentenced to life in prison. Yet, can he still be forgiven? So why is it so hard for us to forgive ourselves? Why do we ask or say things like, we should have known better, or that person should have known better? We know that within each individual and within each person, we have the ability to do good and the ability to do evil or capacity. So when we say something like, that person should have known better, or I should have known better, what we're really saying is that we are better than that other person. We can't imagine ourselves doing something so evil because we ourselves should have known better. So when we say that, we're saying in, in, in effect that we actually are better than that person. So we should have never committed that same kind of sin or mistake. 
It really speaks to our own pride of our estimation of ourselves. And we think we're better than the other. By not forgiving ourselves, we hold ourselves to a higher standard than even God holds us to. By not forgiving ourselves, we give power to sin. We give power to our own selves to say that we are our own judge. And in our estimation, we failed ourselves. But it's God who is the ultimate judge who says to us that in our weakness, in our brokenness, that we, while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. That we are made new, that we are freed from sin. But why do we hold on to such shame? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul was writing this letter. He wrote a few letters to the church of Corinth, and he wrote one letter that was pretty scathing. I think that we don't actually know what was going on in the church of Corinth. Well, we know there was incest and other kind of things, but we don't know if that was the letter he wrote. But in this letter, he wrote and basically condemned them for what they were doing. And he felt so bad about his letter because of the, the kind of response they had, right? Because they felt so bad about what was going on. But he, at the same time, he felt good because of their response to Paul's letter, they repented from their sins and desired to follow God. Their grief was not just a sense of feeling bad about themselves, but it produced repentance. That is, it helped them turn away from their sin, which led to salvation and freedom without regret. Paul here makes that distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief leads to salvation, but worldly grief leads to death. We know that there is a difference in how people respond to things and how people would respond to mistakes. We could feel bad about our mistakes that could still lead to death, that leads to resentment, regret, holding on to this bitterness, or it can lead to freedom, salvation without regret. Is it because when we accept forgiveness that is offered to us by God, he helps us to live and to be free from guilt from, and from regret. Like the word salvation here, we usually think of the word salvation as something of being saved from or so that we could go to heaven. But the word salvation here also means deliverance, meaning being freed from the guilt of sin, from the shame of sin, from living in that moment over and over again. That's why he says, free from regret. To me, that is freedom, right? That regret that you have of that past sin or the thing that you did in your life that you hold on to, that you replay over and over again, that is the thing that God says we can be freed from. Yet we would rather sometimes just wallow in our own self-pity in our own self-condemnation because it feels better to be there than to let go and to embrace the love of God. Henry Nouwen, you know, I, I love Henry Nouwen, where he says that one of the hardest things that we can do in our spiritual journey is to receive God's forgiveness. 
And he uses the example of the prodigal son. We know the story, right? The young son goes and spends all of his money, disowns his dad, basically telling his dad, you, you know, I'd rather have you dead and have, have my inheritance now. Goes and lives uh, this wild living. We don't know what happened. But he gets to a place in his life when he hits rock bottom where he decides, you know what? What am I doing here? It's better that I go home to my father's house as a servant or a slave than to live in my situation now. So we hear, you know, the story where the young son has this speech prepared in his mind of, you know, I've done such wrong against you. I'm going to come home, but I don't deserve to be your son. I am going to come as your servant. And now it says that there is repentance, right? We know that repentance means to turn away, to change your mind, to, to move in a different direction. And we see uh, this young son doing this. But now it says that he thinks the young son is doing it out of a self-serving repentance. Or as what we would, Paul would say, worldly grief. So this kind of repentance acknowledges that we can't make it on our own. And uh, we know we have to ask God for forgiveness but we only do it with the hope that God will not punish us too much. Like, maybe just punish me a little bit, but don't punish me too much. So I'm going to come back with the hope that God would treat me like a servant. So you know what, God, I'm sorry, but just treat me like a servant and not as your son. And we do this because in Something within us, maybe in some of our teachings that we've had in the past, that we see God as this God who is judgmental, a God who is holding on to our sin, just making sure to point out that one thing you've done or that thing that you've, you know, continually do wrong, right? And, and God needs to have recompense. He needs us to repay him back for our sins. So we come you know, groveling, and, you know, we're taught to grovel and come and, and submit. But, again, now it says this is self, it's a self-serving apology. It's a, it's a kind of submission that doesn't really lead to true inner freedom, but only breeds bitter, bitterness and resentment. Listen to what he says. He says, there's something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents, prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it, it even seems as though I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome. While God wants to restore me to the full dignity of sonship, I keep insisting that I will settle for being a higher servant. But do I truly want to be restored to the full responsibility of the son? Do I truly want to be so totally forgiven that a completely new way of living becomes possible? Do I trust myself and, and such a radical reclamation? Do I want to break ways from my deep-rooted rebellion against God and surrender myself so absolutely to God's love that a new person can emerge? Receiving forgiveness requires a total willingness to let God be God and do all the healing, restoring, and renewing. As long as I want to do even a part of that myself, I end up with partial solutions, such as becoming a higher servant. As a higher servant, 
I can still keep my distance, still revolt, reject, strike, run away, or complain about my pay. As a beloved son or a daughter, I have to claim my full dignity and begin preparing myself to become the father. We do not fully want to let go of our sense of control and bargain with God when we come to him. We think we must approach God with the sense of humility and willingness to be his servant because we think he can't truly forgive, forgive us and call us his children. We want to we rather keep him at arm's length. Please forgive me and give me just a small punishment or no punishment at all. So and so that I could still keep being me and live as a hired hand versus as a child. As a hired hand, I can still clock in and clock out and do my own thing. As I can still be myself when I'm not working for you or, or at church on Sundays. And I can live my life as I want it. And just come back on Sundays and put, it, put in my time and put in my due. This kind of forgiveness is on our terms with our own demands. So then we could say to God, look, I put in my time. Give me my pay. You know, get me that good job. Make sure nothing bad happens to me. Instead of trusting God and believing that God is a God of love who wants to forgive, forgive us as a loving parent, not as some mean judge or, or, or a mean uh, landowner, we can embrace his forgiveness completely, trusting that God wants to reinstate us and give us our daughtership and our sonship. Just imagine, think about it, you as a parent, when your child comes back to you asking for forgiveness, do you just say, no, 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 I need you to pay me back? Or do you embrace him or her as your child? And if we could do that with as flawed as we are, how much more does God who loves us and sent his son to die for us forgive us completely? The series uh, that we've been on for the last past three weeks has been called Canceled. Forgiveness as God forgives. And I purposely called it canceled because of the culture that we live in these days. You know, the cancel culture. And this doesn't mean that people shouldn't pay for their actions, that there isn't any consequences or recompense for their actions. But it means that, but yet more. Just imagine, like, all of us, I think, are pretty scared to put anything out there in social media, right? Because as soon as you put anything out there that's, any, that's a little bit controversial, you know, you're going to get attacked, right? And, and there's a good chance you may get canceled. And imagine if your whole life was whittled down to that one moment in the past, that one mistake that you made. Are you defined by that one moment in your life? Yet we do that with our celebrities, right? right? We, there's that skeleton in the closet that's pulled out after 20 years, and, and people see it, and there's much condemnation. And yet, that person may have made that mistake, and they do have to, I guess, live with what they've done. But yet, they're not defined that by one moment. Imagine if you were defined by that one mistake in your life. We are much more than our mistakes. 
We are called to be people who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus in our lives. And therefore, we are called to forgive others as God forgives us and to also forgive ourselves. So how has God forgiven us? And as Abby has shared a few weeks ago, as far as the east is from the west, he has forgiven us with an everlasting love. Let me just read you a few other passages that talk about the forgiveness of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. God canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. We cancel one another over our sins. God cancels our sins and keeps no record of our wrongs. Psalm 133-4. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins... Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs, and God is love. Desmond Tutu believed that all people should be forgiven, including ourselves. He said this was in many ways the basis of the truth and reconciliation process. We heard blood-curdling stories of how people had been murdered brutally, and yet we saw some extraordinary scenes of magnanimity. Ah, magnanimity. Ah, I didn't practice that word. When perpetrator and victim or relative of victim embraced publicly, if it were true that once a murderer is always a murderer, then we should have had to shut up shop straight away. But we believe then, and I, I hope we still do, that it was possible for people to change for the better, that the worst criminal could become a good and virtuous person. One of the choices that the people of South Africa had to make after the apartheid was revenge or forgiveness. They chose forgiveness. Instead of the unending cycle of revenge, they decided to take the harder way, the more courageous way, the godly way of forgiveness. And when I thought about forgiveness and looking at, you know, who is the foremost person who could speak on forgiveness? I thought of Desmond Tutu. I'm like, who else would be able to give us uh, counsel and how to forgive one another? And that's why I came across that book called Forg The Book of Forgiving by David Tutu, David Tutu, Desmond Tutu, and his daughter. They wrote this book together. And I thought, if anyone had any right to say anything about showing forgiveness, it would be him. And in his book, he talks about our need to forgive one another for the same reasons we need to forgive others and to embrace that forgiveness. When we don't forgive others, we live in resentment, bitterness, and has all these negative impact on who we are. And so in the same way, when we can't forgive ourselves, we live with those same negative consequences. In the book, he writes how we are to forgive and receive forgiveness. And he has this thing called the four, fourfold path of forgiving. And I'm just going to give you a quick uh, overview of it. Uh, you know, I encourage you to read in more detail, but here it is. So here's the fourfold path. Telling the story, naming the hurt, granting forgiveness, renewing or releasing the relationship. So I'm just going to give you a quick uh, thing of each one. So telling the truth. We're to speak the truth. Start with the facts. 
Tell your story first to a friend, to maybe a loved one or a trusted person. Um, we, we heard that story about that per, uh, person, Kelly, who, who killed someone with, with their car. And it took them for a lo- her a long time to get to a place where she could share her story. But just that ability to share her story was the first step of being able to forgive herself. So consider telling the story to a person who harmed you or writing a letter. Accept whatever has happened that cannot be changed or undone. Number two, naming the hurt. Identify the feelings within the facts. Remember, no feeling is wrong, bad, or invalid. Recognize the stage of grief and honor wherever you fall in the process. Find someone, again, who will acknowledge you and listen to your feelings without trying to fix them. Accept your own vulnerability. Move forward when you are ready. One of the things uh, Desmond Tutu talks about, and we know this to be true, is that forgiveness is a process, it's a journey. It's not an overnight decision. Third, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice. We have a choice to make. We grow through forgiving. Forgiving is how we move from victim to hero in our story. We know we are healing when we are able to tell a new story from that tragic past or whatever that, has, that may have happened. Lastly, renewing or releasing the relationship. The preference is always to renew unless there is a question of safety. Ask for what you need from the perpetrator in order to renew or release the relationship. One thing I love about this is that ideally we want to renew that relationship and for that relationship to get stronger. But he recognizes that, that there can be releasing of that relationship, that we may not be in relationship with each other anymore and let go of that relationship, but yet without it being a place of harm or of, of bitterness or resentment. You may need an apology, an explanation, a tangible object, or to never see that person again. Look at your part in any conflict. And when you do renew a relationship, it is stronger for what you have been through but it is always different. By renewing or releasing a relationship, you free yourself from victimhood and trauma. We can be freed from our past, from our hurts, and can be defined by more than our past failures. Just as we are forgiven by God and are called to forgive others as God forgives, we are also invited to forgive ourselves as God forgives us. So is there an area in your life that you need to forgive yourself from? What might God be calling you to? And what may you need to open up room for God for? How can you invite God into those parts and areas in your life that you continue to punish yourself for? And we know forgiveness isn't easy, nor does it happen overnight. But what we do know is that we believe in a God who can and does and wants to forgive us. He wants to forgive us. He doesn't have to. He actually likes us and wants us to come to him. What small step can you take in receiving and embracing that forgiveness of God so that you could forgive others and yourself? This past week, I was at a Toronto Baptist Ministries uh, retreat for pastors, and one of the questions that um, the leader wanted us to focus on is, what do you think Jesus 
Or how do you think Jesus thinks of, think of you? Or what does Jesus think of me was the question. And I was supposed to reflect on that. And that's a question that I've been reflecting on a lot just because of my studies and now and, and all of that. And this was what I wrote down. I wrote down, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I love you and delight in you. You inspire me to write songs to create beauty. My love for you makes me sing. And I wrote this down because it is something I still need to embrace every day of my life. And even though I wrote this down and I was reflecting on it, I was also reflecting on my past and all the things I've done wrong and the things that I still seem to hold on to. And I was reflecting on it. I'm like, God, how do I let this go? And what am I supposed to do with this past, you know, all these mistakes I have and potential mistakes I'm going to make in the future? And then I realized, why am I still holding on to these things? I just heard from God that I am his son and I'm well pleased. Yet then I go and focus on my sins and all the mistakes I've made in the past. And so I want to encourage you and I want to end this time by reading these words that I thought I heard from God for me. But I think it's for all of you and everyone in this room. And may this be something you could embrace for yourself. Let's pray together. This is what Jesus says to you. You are my beloved child, and with you I am well pleased. I love you, and I delight in you. I like you. You inspire me to write songs, to create beauty. My love for you makes me sing. And Father, we are so grateful that you are a God of love, that your love for us is so deep, so wide. Yet, sometimes we project our ideas of who you are by the way we see ourselves, maybe by the way we've felt love or not felt love. And Father, help us to recognize that those are lies. That we are not what we think of ourselves, but we are who you say we are. So, Father, give us the courage to let go, to trust and believe that you have forgiven us completely, that you love us and give us the courage to be able to share our wrongs, our pains, our past, the things that we hold on to with, with those who are trusted, whether it's a professional or a close friend. Give us that courage to take the first step and to take more steps, trusting that you love us, that you call us your beloved, that you delight in us. Help that Give us the courage to do so. And uh, we thank you. We want to embrace that we are loved by you, and we want to live as people who are loved so that we can love others and forgive others. So thank you. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.